All right. I know that there are a lot of dads who would have herds of kids to migrate forward, so I'm not going to ask you to do that part, but it's been a long time since we've done that. I miss that. Uh, If you want to put your finger in it so that you'll be right there when we get started, um, go ahead and turn to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there won't be any slides today, including the scripture slide. So if you want to grab one of the hardback blue English Standard Version Bibles in front of you, you can find where we're going to be on page 263. We'll be in chapter 2. We're just starting the chapter today, verses 1 through 13. And uh, I want to point out a, um, a reality that we see here in the Christian journey of following after Jesus. Um, that I, ha- I haven't necessarily explicitly called out or brought to our attention. We've spent a lot of time talking about love, Hesed love, God's loyal, steadfast, one directional love that's on display through the person of Ruth and eventually Boaz, we see that too. Uh, and and that's, that is a place where we should be parked for much of this series is looking at God's love through his people and understanding how, what that says about his love toward us and how we're to love others. However, Um, I I also want to talk about this connection between faith and love, this dance that exists between faith and love, this back and forth, how one feeds the other, which feeds the other, and just make sure that that's on display here, that this isn't just on Ruth's part, this incredible expression of love that's unfounded on something else. Um, You don't just wake up one day and become a loving person as much as I wish it were that easy. Ruth isn't just uniquely an awesome person. Um, She may have been uh, in some ways, but this love that we see is, the conclusion we're meant to draw is not this is unique to her, but this is a love that whether we realize it or not, all of us are partakers of, participants in from, from him, and a love that we can be infused by and extend to others. And so this is, where the, this is where faith comes in. The fuel for that love that we've seen on display in Ruth's life is faith. And I want to clarify that faith isn't a, a character thing only, primarily. It's not that this person, Ruth, is so amazing and that's why they have great faith. It's that this person's object of faith is so amazing. And so that's why she has great faith. Ruth hadn't always known the God of Israel. She was a Moabitess from Moab, which worshiped other gods uh, and not the God of Israel. Her exposure to Yahweh had come through Naomi and her family, who were Hebrews who worshiped the God of Israel and migrated from Israel to Moab in the time of the famine. Had some interesting conversations this week just about in our tribe, which is our small groups at Terra Nova, about what do we do with this reality that more than likely there's evidence here that Naomi and her family never should have left Israel, that it was in fact a fleeing and escaping of God rather than a steadfastness to trust him. And yet, like the result of that was that this person, Ruth, not only came to know the God of Israel, but showed us one of the most beautiful expressions of his love we've ever seen captured for us in scripture. What do you do with that? I don't know if I have a good answer. It's not to presume upon God's grace and, you know, do things we shouldn't do because he's going to bring good of it, but he does bring good even after we've done things we shouldn't have done. And so we see that in Ruth. 
So she's been introduced to this God, Yahweh, by Naomi, but at some point it wasn't just knowledge about somebody else's God, vicarious faith. It became personal. It became her own. She understood God to be a God of power. We talked about how there was an understanding on her part that God's power existed even outside of Israel, which at the time, nations who believed in different gods believed their God only had power and authority within the confines of their own nation. She understood that God was almighty, more powerful than any other so-called gods. She had come to understand something about his goodness, which is why she chose to entrust herself to him and leaving everything she knew and was familiar with to go with this old woman who wouldn't provide for her any security or hope for her future. She came to understand that this God, Yahweh, our God, was the only one who could catch her in this free fall of faith. And no doubt it felt like a free fall at times. One of the things we'll, we'll, I'll talk about and reference at times today is we don't necessarily see that in this story. We don't necessarily see wavering faith, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't. It doesn't mean that there weren't moments of doubt and struggle on her part. Um, sometimes I think when we think about faith, we think, okay, well, if we have confident, strong faith, that's because we're 100% sure about something. We're, as Christians, 100% sure God exists, 100% sure he sent his son to die for, for us, for our sins, so that we could have new life. And certainly we do have confidence, and at times it feels like extreme confidence that's a gift from God. But the reality is faith is always a leap of faith on, by by definition, it's believing in something you can't fully prove or, or, or understand. And that's true too as Christians. For, for starters, we can't see God except in the person and work of Jesus, but even he is not here with us today. We have the scriptures that tell us about him. Circumstances in our lives sometimes don't reconcile what we know to be true about God, so that can cause doubt, that can call wavering, cause wavering faith. And we frankly don't fully know this God. Right? Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of the books of the Pentateuch early on in the Bible, Moses records that the secret things belong to God. There are secret things we don't fully understand about this God. Many of them maybe will be revealed to us and we'll understand when we get to heaven one day. We probably will never fully understand God. He's infinite and we're not. But that, the second half of that verse says the things revealed belong to man and his children. There are certain things we don't know about God. And so, yes, we proceed by faith in this journey of following Jesus, which means we're, we're proceeding in, in light of less than 100% confidence at times, okay? And that was Ruth's situation, no doubt. Um, so here's, though, to get into that dance of faith and love, here's how that kind of works as we see it play out in our lives and in this story. Just as faith is then the fuel for this love that we've seen in Naomi, Love then, in turn, serves to fuel our faith. All right, sometimes we are uncertain before we act in faith, but then once we act in faith, God meets us in the midst of it in a way he only ever could had we taken that step of faith, that free fall, and then we know something more deeply about him and our faith grows. Faith is the fuel for love. Love, in turn, when we step into it, God meets us in the midst of our obedience, serves to fuel our faith. And as our faith grows, obedience and love grow, and it shines more like Christ's in our life. So this is what I mean by this dance between faith and love, this cyclical relationship that exists between the two, where one leads to the other. 
and then the other, and so on and so forth. And I don't want us to miss that in this story. It's not just that Ruth is amazing at loving. It's that there was a faith that was behind it, and that faith was strengthened as she stepped out in faith and saw God continually meet her along the way. So today, while we could talk about, we could say love is courageous and love is humble, even as in previous weeks we've talked about love is enduring and love is selfless. Love is courageous and humble, and we will talk about that today, but I want to talk about it from the angle of faith. So four things we're going to talk about today when it comes to faith, and you may want to write these down. Like I said, I don't have any slides, so if you're a note taker and it helps you to track, four things, pretty simple. We're going to see in Ruth a faith that risks, a faith that works, a faith rightly motivated, and faith that's rewarded. So if you still have your your thumb there in Ruth chapter 2, would you stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's word, verses 1 through 13. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from the early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father, your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. You may be seated. A faith that risks. This is the first thing that we see when we look at Ruth's life and try to understand the fuel and the motivation behind why she loved as she did. A little bit before we um, get into that, I want to give you some context here. This idea of gleaning. What is gleaning? It might be unfamiliar, certainly, I think, to many of us, a little foreign to us in our modern day and age. 
Um, this is where wealthy landowners uh, would make provision for the poor, um, recognizing that everything that they had was from God. They would leave corners of their fields um, available to the poor in their society to be able to glean, um, take some of, uh, of the, the grain for themselves so that they wouldn't go hungry and they could provide for their families. Um, we, we do use this term in, in modern senses sometimes, right? Like, uh, I'd, I, I would love to glean from that person's wisdom, right? We're saying, relatively speaking, we're, we're, poor, we're poor in wisdom to this person. Uh, and so we recognize they have something we don't, and, and we just want to take a little bit from the edges because um, they have more than we do, right? So this is the idea of gleaning. It was actually a scriptural mandate uh, in the Old Testament. It was a part of God's heart being on display for people in general um, the actual title under that section of the chapter would be love your neighbor. This is one of the ways he called his people to love their neighbors. In Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 10, this is one of the books of the law instructing God's people on how to act. This is what it says. When you reap of the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So the edges of the field were to be left um, untouched for those who were in need. Modern day context, some grocery stores will open up their back doors and give out uh, the day old um, uh, perishable items uh, to those who are in need. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times there's liability issues and that doesn't happen, but um, some still do. Uh, I, when I was in seminary, uh, somebody had an inn at Panera Bread, and so when, at the end of the day, when their day-old bagels, they, they had to throw them out, um, this person would bring them to seminary the next day, and they would spread them out on the tables in our common room, and they'd call it manna. So that was us gleaning, right, from the leftovers, the abundance of Panera Bread. So this is what Ruth was doing in a much more sobering sense, like for survival. She was going out into, these, uh, into the fields, um, of the Israelites to glean in order to be able to make sure that she and Naomi could survive. But what I want you to see here is this was filled with great risk. It'd be easy to miss, but let's not forget who she was and the situation that Ruth was in. She's on her own, right? She's in a new place. She's unknown by this group of people. She's a stranger. I mean, just stop there. How uncomfortable is that for us to walk in, well, some of us, especially the introverts, to a room with a bunch of people we've never met before, especially if those people happen to be, at least in our mind's eye, of higher social standing to us, more educated than us, more talented than us. It's, it can be uncomfortable. This is her situation. Not only that, she's a woman in a male-dominated culture when it came to who held the power. If I, need, if I need to switch, let me know. I don't know if it's just me. I feel like I keep hearing static. She's a, a sojourner. She's a, a foreigner. And with all of that in mind, she was also very vulnerable. Okay? She, she was in a position where she could have easily been taken advantage of by the men in that society. And the impression I get is it wouldn't even necessarily be frowned upon. Sometimes we can look at uh, other cultures and people groups in history through rose-colored lenses. And we have to be careful not to do that with Israel just because they were God's people. Um, and, and this, we're clued into the fact that that risk of her being taken advantage of the men in the society comes through and that Boaz actually instructed his workers not to touch this woman. That's the inference there. So for Ruth, this wasn't just a common sense thing to do. This wasn't just the obvious thing to do. It came with great risk. 
Now, risk and faith are virtually synonymous, in many ways anyway. I think we can relate to this even in everyday, ordinary life. Faith always involves risk of some sort. We don't always think of it that way. But even small acts of love in our life require faith and therefore risk. Um, If you're aware of the right thing to do in a situation, but you feel reluctant to do it, that's because there's risk involved. There's a cost that you're sensing you're going to have to pay to do what is right and good. A couple examples. Maybe there are nights where, in whatever situation you're in, but I'll speak from my own, when you're in marriage, where you, uh, you, 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 go into, you want to go to bed early, but you know that the right thing to do because of what's being brought up in a conversation from your spouse is to have that conversation. It's already late, but you recognize, okay, this is going to be important. I want to honor this person and have this conversation. And it ends up being a late into the night conversation. Well, what's the risk? Why is there a reluctance? The risk is waking up tired the next morning and the ripple effect of not having the energy throughout the day to do what I need to do. But acting in, but the, the faith that's involved there is acting in faith that love is, we know as Christians, as we look to our Savior Jesus, it's sacrificial. It's faith that If I do this, I can trust God's going to provide. I may, in fact, be tired the next day, but he'll provide for what I need. It's faith that, you know what, this conversation is going to yield fruit, maybe in our marriage, maybe in my spouse's life. You see how risk is involved even in the small mundane of everyday life? What about even littler things? Like, I don't know, maybe this is just me and I'm exposing the inner selfishness in me, but when you go to a grocery store and like, all the lines are pretty full and you see the shortest one and you're equidistant with somebody else who's making their way, you pick up your pace a little bit, right? On my best days, I slow down my pace and I'm just like, okay, you know, it's not a big deal. This person can get in front of me. What's, what's the risk that's involved in that faith? Well, the risk is that I'm going to be a little bit late for whatever I need to get to next. But I'm acting in faith that in following Jesus, he tells me to consider the interests of others more important than my own. I'm acting in faith that God can make up for those three minutes and that the world's not going to end if I'm a little bit later to what I'm going to. These may sound trivial. That's my point. I'm trying to show you that all faith involves risk of some kind. But for Ruth, it's much more obvious, isn't it? It's a huge, huge leap of faith on her part, which honestly lends to the potential for there to be a huge, huge, we'll talk about this later, reward that is reaped. In some ways, the bigger the risk, the greater the potential for the reward, that reward being intimacy with God, that reward being provision from God, that reward being a strengthened faith because we see our God for who we thought he was that much more clearly. Um, By the way, I wanted to point out, I think this is helpful to help you understand the position Ruth was in. Not only was she risking by going out to these fields in this foreign land as a young woman um, to uh, her, you know, rejection from these people who didn't know her and potential harm to her herself. But there are hints here even that Naomi could have gone instead or at least with her. If you remember back in chapter one, in verse six, the whole reason they went back to Bethlehem to begin with is because Naomi, while she was in the fields, presumably harvesting there, heard that God's favor had returned back to his people in Israel. The thing is, Naomi wouldn't have been as susceptible as Ruth. She was an older woman. She was a Hebrew, so she was of that culture. She was known in that community. 
It's debatable, but it might have only been a thousand people in Bethlehem at that time. She was a known quantity, whereas Ruth was not. My point in, bring, in bringing that to the surface is to say that love is hard, not just because it takes courage because of what sacrifice might come to us. Love is also hard because sometimes grace is required. Grace being undeserved favor. We proceed in love and in obedience even when we wouldn't have to if those people around us would just get their acts together. It's actually pretty beautiful in that I think Ruth here was recognizing while Naomi could have come and helped her, she was in a season in a stretch right now where she was grieving. Maybe she was even a little depressed and she gave her the space to do that at risk to herself. So this is faith. This is faith that we see in Ruth, that she acted in a way that didn't make sense in light of the possibility of the rejection and harm that could come to her. But she has committed herself to the Lord. She has sought refuge in him. Her trust that he is able to overcome these obstacles is greater than the obstacles themselves. And again, no doubt she did have some fear there. She was human, after all. And by the way, it wasn't just Ruth's faith that is on display here and risk that was taken, also Boaz's. Um, to a lesser degree, I think, but I think that's still in view. Boaz here, as a man of means and privilege and power in the society, takes a risk to pr protect Ruth. What he's risking is his reputation. What he's risking is his business. So yes, he was a power holder. He was wealthy. He owned these fields and these workers. Uh, he had a, a high standing socially within their society. But he doesn't, what I want you to see here, he doesn't use that power for himself but he uses it instead for someone else who easily could have been overlooked and taken advantage of and marginalized and even abused. So he aligns himself with Ruth here and he uses his power to protect and provide for the needy. Why? Well, because he's heard of her reputation and of what she's done for Naomi, who he knows is a member of his family. So don't miss the courage and the risk that is here for Boaz as well. Associating yourself with the lowly, in, in his case, as a, a man of authority and respect, risked being ridiculed and the ire of those around him as well as his business on some level. Um, in the New Testament, this, Jesus gives us this radical picture of how love should look different than what it did amongst many of the people at his time. He says that, um, you know, you love those who love you, but I say you should love those who love your enemy. Well, Here's a situation that's similar um, where you don't just love those who are like you in social standing and status and power and ability and interest, but you love those who are very different from you and in fact maybe that are overlooked by the rest of society. See, Boaz had everything to lose here and really nothing to gain. He could lose time, he could lose resources, reputation. Why then does he do this? because he had a faith. We're told he's a worthy man. Implications there, virtuous man. He loved God. He had a faith that was willing to risk. Faith that God had given him everything that he had to begin with, not just materially, but social standing in society. He was willing to risk that because he knew something of God's love for himself. Um, as we'll come to find out, this is a, a love story. There's, there's actually a love story that is brewing and blossoming here. Um, and I bring this up now because some might be tempted to chalk up Boaz's extension of grace and hospitality and provision to Ruth and to, to get what he wants. Because here's a young, beautiful woman 
uh, and maybe this, you know, the love story that's brewing is just because of his attraction to her. But I, what I think I want us to see here, I do want us to see this, is that love is about so much more than physical attraction and feelings for another person. Because here we see it rooted not in the physical, but in godly character. That's the only evidence we have here for why Boaz responded to Ruth as he did. Not because of her social standing or her popularity or her physical appearance. Remember, Ruth is the one who later in the story approaches Boaz. Not Boaz, Ruth. Um, and if you don't know the story, she'll take this maybe even greater leap of faith later on to approach him as her and Naomi's kinsman redeemer, the one who can redeem them um, from this desperate state they're in and basically pro proposes to him, takes the initiative in that regard. So while he certainly could have been attracted to Ruth, that wasn't his acting interest here as a power holder taking this risk to serve this person who is the least of the least within society. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain but he was willing to take a risk as well. So we, f we see that faith is basically synonymous with risk. We also see that faith works, uh, a faith that works in Ruth. Um, Ruth's example of faith here also teaches us that authentic faith is only seen through action. Um, after all, taking risk implies action, okay? We already kind of have gotten into that even with the first point. Um, now, when I say that, faith that works, some of our reaction may be kind of like to stiff arm that or to question what does he mean by that, rightfully so, but some of that is Protestant PTSD, okay, um, where we want to separate the idea that works has anything to do with salvation, right? Don't even put works and faith near each other in terms of which is m most important for us to actually be saved. And understandably so. There are passages of Scripture like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which tell us, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's like Paul is going out of his way to make sure we understand it's not works that saves us because he goes on to say, and this isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. You can't get any clearer than that. It's not any matter of works that earns God's favor and love of us. Uh, so resistant to this idea have Protestants been historically to any combination of faith and works in our salvation, that Martin Luther, the famous reformer, struggled to accept the book of James as even being belonging in the canon of scripture. The book of James, which says that faith without works cannot save a person. He wanted nothing to do with that. Remember, one of his mantras as a result of, uh, of what he saw wrong with the church at the time was justification by faith alone through grace alone, right? Works is left out of this entire, entirely. If my memory serves me correctly, he tolerated James being in his Bible, but never preached from it or taught from it. Okay, and, and even from that, I think one of the things that we can draw as a conclusion that's helpful for us is even a brilliant theologian and godly man like Martin Luther can bring his bias into understanding God's word and into understanding who God is. So we should all be aware of that in our own day and age. Again, James, the book of James, it's a letter written by one of Jesus' disciples in the New Testament. James says, faith without works is dead. So what does that mean then in the context of this conversation that we see in Ruth a faith that works, but works don't actually contribute to your salvation? Well, James didn't mean that you needed faith 
believe in Jesus and in the key doctrines of the Christian faith, plus activities or works that you do in order to be saved and forgiven by God. What he was warning against was this false teaching that you could believe all the right things and be saved without your life looking any different, without any change taking place in your life, without any action in the form of Christ-like love taking place in your life. Again, if the faith which saves is real, it will be evidenced in a changed life, in action, in a love that takes risks. And Ruth was a woman of action. Ruth, in fact, is the pinnacle picture of biblical womanhood. Many actually believe that Ruth is, was intended to be the embodiment of Proverbs 31. Proverbs is a book of wisdom in the in Old Testament. It's, Proverbs 31 is the last of those chapters in that book, which describes the characteristics of a virtuous woman. Do you remember in the beginning of our reading today, chapter uh, two, verse one, where the narrator describes Boaz as a worthy man? Well, he actually uses that same word of Ruth in chapter three, verse 11. He praises her as a worthy woman. Only other place that phrase is used in the Bible, Proverbs 31. In fact, there are also versions of the Bible from before the time of Jesus so before Jesus came, so these like Old Testament compilations of scripture that placed the book of Ruth right after Proverbs. She's the preeminent picture of the Proverbs 31 woman, a woman of action and character. Here in verse, uh, chapter two, verses one through 13, we see a couple things. There's so much more that we'll, we'll unpack and explore, but just two things that stood out to me. Number one, she's not passive, but she's proactive. All right, she doesn't wait for someone else to provide. She doesn't sit back and hope God drops a solution in her lap. She sees the need and she does what she needs to do to meet that need at great risk to herself. But that godly ambition, if you will, is all the more powerful when we see it in combination with the second thing, which is that she wasn't weak, but she was meek. All right, she was proactive but she didn't have a chip on her shoulder about it as she was seeking to make things right. Ruth lived in a culture that demeaned women in many ways, understand. Some of those characteristics were still present at the time of Jesus in the New Testament, which is why his inclusion of women in his band of disciples was so radical and his conversation with the woman at, uh, of Samaria at the well was so radical, asking her to draw water for him. The, the, the Jewish men at the time wouldn't have dreamed of doing something like that. So in Ruth's day, before this time even, there was definitely problems with the way that women were viewed and treated. This is the setting that Ruth is in. But here's a beautiful hallmark of true feminism, humility. She didn't begrudge, for example, Naomi for not getting up and working with her or going in her place. She still sought her permission even to go out into the field. She didn't presume upon Boaz's generosity. You owe it to me when he actually granted her protection and favor. She showed great humility, gratitude, and a deference that was appropriate to the social norms of men and women in that day. She was therefore a bold uh, risk taker in her faith and proactive and a hard worker, but she was also meek. Meek meaning strength that is bridled, strength under control. Strength that didn't presume superiority over others, but like Jesus, considered the interests of others more important than himself. 
and she changed the world. Bridged the gap of the line of the coming Messiah who would save the world. Through that proactivity and strength and hard work ethic with this meekness. And oh, how powerful is a life that is bold and strong but doesn't need to be seen as such. That's what's so impressive to me about Ruth. Ruth's faith was a faith that worked, but that work was not for the purpose of being seen by others and proving something about herself. It was a work that was intended to serve those around her and to love. And her humility is evidenced in that when she recognized, uh, was recognized by Boaz, she wasn't like, well, it's about time or, well, this is what I was deserved. She's flabbergasted. She's surprised. She felt unworthy of this recognition. Ruth 2.10, then she fell on her face after these words from Boaz, praise, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And in verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not even one of your servants. That's beautiful meekness and humility, but not weakness. She was a strong woman. So Ruth's was a faith that worked. Her faith was real because it took action. It wasn't just in her head. And it was also accompanied by this beautiful meekness and humility. Thirdly, faith, she shows us a faith that was rightly motivated. What was underneath this faith? This is where we start to get into the dance of faith and love and the, the fruit that stepping out in faith yields. When we look at Ruth's life, I think we can fall into one of two camps. We can either admire her and be inspired, or we can be overwhelmed and intimidated by the godliness and character we see in her. We can think to ourselves, well, that's great, but I could never be like that. That's so far removed from what is even possible for me, or that I could ever be like. It almost becomes powerless in our lives to see an example like hers. But if that's our reaction, that's to give too, too much credit to a person and not to God, the object of her faith, he was the source of inspiration for the beautiful display of love that we see in her life. Now, some people are naturally highly competent type A people, whether they're Christian or not. And those people, many of them are blessings and gifts to humanity. But the point is you don't have to be a type A driven, go-getter kind of a person to have this bold, faith-filled love in your life. Because Ruth's bold, risk-taking, hard-working uh, faith was fueled by what all you, all you guys and myself can find our fuel in, which was the right motivation. Boaz tells us what that motivation was in verse 12, when he says to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, worth, uh, Ruth wasn't working uh, for faith. She was working from faith. She wasn't working for acceptance and love from God. She was working from a place where she knew she was already accepted by God and loved by God, which is why she was going to him to find refuge under his wings, protection and provision from him. Her faith in action sprung from a belief that God could be trusted with her whole life. That was her motivation. And I want to clarify that the source of motivation for Ruth's faith wasn't an outcome in particular. 
right? For she knew that there would be no guarantee of her safety as she stepped out in faith to go out into these fields. Her source of motivation was that even if the outcome she desired didn't come to fruition, that her God would catch her in that free fall, that she would still find refuge under his wings, that he was more, that he was fully aware of her, her situation, her need, that he was fully in control, he was fully good. That was her source of faith. That was her motivation, not a particular outcome. And again, she's human. No doubt this was a fight for faith, that she had to urge and encourage herself to continue to operate in light of this belief about God. We're not really privy to those moments before the decisions we see made where she may have been teetering on doubt before she came to the conclusion she was gonna trust and move forward in faith to love. But that's what we see. We get to see the final product of her faith, which is the decisions to love. And those decisions were rewarded. And so that leads us to our final point, which is we see in Ruth a faith that is rewarded. God keeps on meeting Ruth. It probably wasn't even as evident to her at the time as it is to us in hindsight. It's subtle. It's the hidden hand of God we talked about at the beginning, but it's there. We already talked last time about how it's, it's no coincidence that the timing of their return to Bethlehem was such that it was at the beginning of the barley harvest. I wonder if they saw it in that moment as God meeting them in that act of faith. How often do we miss this? Do I miss this? I think Matt and I could testify to how many times somebody in our church has, uh, for good reasons, been called on, moved on, who was in significant leadership or served in a significant way or was significant when it came to financial stewardship within our church. And we're just like, how are things going to continue now? And then somebody comes or somebody from within simultaneously and independently from knowing anything about that comes to us and says, I just feel led by God to step into the eldership process, to give uh, when I've never given before, to serve in this capacity uh, that is unbeknownst to them needed by our church. It's the hidden hand of God. It's similar. He's always working behind the scenes to provide for his people as they continue to move forward in faith. God continues to reward Ruth's risky faith. And I just want to point out a couple of those things as we move toward a close that we see here in this passage where he's meeting her in the midst of that act of faith as she loves to reward that faith. Verse three, first, she goes into the field and the language used here is she just so happened to come to the part of the field that belongs to Boaz, who just so happened to be from the clan of Elimelech. Naomi's husband. The Hebrew phrase that's used here uh, uses the word chance in the Hebrew twice. Uh, It could be translated as, as luck would have it, she chanced upon the field. Here's what you need to know. Less than even we do today, the Hebrews did not believe in luck. They did not believe in chance. This is why they would draw lots, like little different piece lengths of straw to determine direction and answers of how they're to proceed. I'm not advocating for that for us. They did not believe in luck. The narrator was trying to be as subtle yet obvious as he could. This was the hand of God that Ruth ended up in this field at this time. And verse four, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. That word behold, you could translate that as, uh, and wouldn't you know it, Boaz at that moment came from Bethlehem. Again, this is the beauty of being able to kind of dig into and understand a little bit of 
uh, what's being communicated in the original languages. Again, it wasn't chance. It was God meeting Ruth in her faithfulness. In verses 5 through 11, Boaz, he comes back. He recognizes there's someone new in his field. He doesn't know who it is at first. He asks the servant who she is. And because while he was in Bethlehem, he just so happened to have heard about this woman and her reputation, he puts two and two together. And so he knows who this woman is. He provides for her. He, he, he makes the situation as favorable as possible for her to be successful in what she set out to do. He protects her. And then in verse 12, he prays this beautiful blessing of God over her. Um, and it's kind of ironic and probably was unwitting on his part, but Boaz ends up being the primary answer to that prayer. I don't know if he's even aware of this. Um, and this is just one of the ways that God works. It is God ultimately blessing Ruth, but he does so through this honorable and worthy man, Boaz. Which is to say, guys, as we are praying for those around us that we love and see in need, um, don't forget to consider whether or not you may be a part of the answer to that prayer. And so Ruth's faith is rewarded here. And we see the faith love dance in one full res revolution. We see Ruth posed with a love need, Naomi, and their desperate situation, and she takes a huge risk. She takes the plunge of faith in order to love. And then we see God meets her in the midst of her action. He reveals he's there. I'm here, Ruth. He reveals he's faithful. He reveals himself as a provider and a protector. Her faith is then rewarded and strengthened, no doubt, by seeing these circumstances come together as they did. This one full revolution of many revolutions in this disciple journey of how God strengthens and grows us as Christians. I want to invite the band to come back up at this point just to try to bring this a little bit more home for us as Christians today. This risk-reward experience is part of the Christian's daily experience. I think oftentimes we live it, live it out unawares that this is actually the opportunity before us. But it's how we grow. We risk loving. It often feels like huge risk. It feels like death sometimes in the midst of it. But when we step out in faith, God catches us in that free fall and he breathes into us resurrection life. He provides, he protects, he comforts, he cares, he consoles, whatever it is we needed as we stepped out in faith. So as we prepare for communion, I want us to see something here today. I want us to see that those daily experiential risk-reward Occurrences are many pictures of the ultimate risk-reward experience, that ultimate dance of faith and love and following after Jesus. Every day as we follow Jesus and risk faith, we experience many deaths and resurrections. Right? And by the way, I realize many of these, these deaths drag out for a long time. They may not feel daily. Right? Sometimes when we're dealing with broken relationships, broken bodies, broken dreams, um, we are uh, experiencing and expressing faith that has to endure over the course, not just of days, but months, years, and sometimes even decades. But you're here today, aren't you? Whether it feels like it or not, God sustains us, and it all points back to the ultimate risk-reward of faith. 
in faith, we lay down our lives for others because we believe Christ laid down his life for us. In faith, we submit our lives to the will of God because he submitted the life of his son to the will of broken men and women who ultimately put his son on a cross. And we do this by faith. Faith that as we love, faith that as we serve, faith that if, as we give our lives, that even if we sometimes wait for months or years or decades for God to catch us in the free fall, he will. He will ultimately do that. And he's shown us that in Jesus, his son, the firstborn from the dead, who is the guarantee that you and I too will rise to new life, to eternal life, to eternal joy with him forever in the new heavens and in the new earth. If you're not familiar here at Terranova, we have a chance to acknowledge that truth is true for you and us as his body through communion. So over the next two songs, there'll be a chance for you to come forward. There'll be two servers. You can take a broken piece of matzah, representing Jesus' broken body for you, and dip that into the wine or the juice. Um, and just reflect and remember today on what he has done for you. This is for all here today who believe that in fact, God will catch you in the free fall of faith as you follow after Jesus. That he will give you resurrection life at the end of this life through what Jesus has done for you. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you acknowledging this morning that we love only because you first loved us. We come to you this morning acknowledging we are powerless to follow not only your son, we are powerless to follow even in Ruth's example of love. Apart from seeing you revealed, would you open our eyes to see yourself, to the ways that you're constantly at work around us, providing for us, protecting, consoling, comforting. Open our eyes to all the examples you've given us of meeting us with these many resurrections as we step out in faith, even when it feels like death at times. Lord, thank you as we celebrate communion now for the ultimate death that paid the price for our sins and the ultimate resurrection that's been purchased for us through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.